Welcome to It's a Nice Place to Brew with Jason and George, a show about all things beer and beer making. Gentlemen, please broadcast responsibly. Hello. Hello. It's been too long. It has. Man. I, you know, we're we're really trying to get to the podcast more and more, but the problem is the brewing is getting in the way. We've been doing so, <laughs> so much true. stuff that, you know, the, the podcast, we need to redouble our efforts on that one. <laughs> I hear that. Well, welcome back. Uh, this is episode five of A Nice Place to Brew. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today. It's been a very eventful month. Um We've done several different batches of beer, and we'll uh, there's uh, there's a meat in the mix as well, and we got some big things in the in the pipeline coming up in the next uh, in the next month as well about uh, some events and some other uh, beers that we've got uh, uh, planned for uh, for uh, for production very very quickly. So uh, yeah, there's a lot to talk to. Thanks uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming back. And uh, I guess one other thing I'll say on the onset here is the shows will be uh, will be coming up uh, more often. Yes, uh, we've um, we've gotten comfortable with some new, uh, new technology that's going to uh, give us the ability to record in other locations other than my house, and uh, we've we've got a lot that we want to talk about and and uh, bring in the future. So uh, so keep an eye out, uh, plenty more to come. Anyway, um, that's uh, that's the intro. Uh, we're going to start uh, with past. We're going to talk about uh, some beers that we've had uh, recently, some of uh, some that we enjoyed, some some that uh, we didn't enjoy so much, um, some that we don't know about yet. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> as past, past, present, future, as uh, as our episodes go. So, uh, George, why don't you uh, why don't you start us off? What's uh, what's the first beer you had this this month? First beer I had since the last recording was one called Krombacher. Krombacher, um, yeah, it's definitely from um, somewhere in Europe that I don't remember right now, and it is a true pilsner in that it is a lager, and uh, it its percentage was four point eight percent by volume, and it's very light, very um, very. I mean, it's very much of a pilsner. However, it is very. Um, it's got a little bit of hop character, not not a whole lot as you would expect from a Pilsner. Very easy drinking. And one thing that kind of stood out for me with this was uh, how full the body was. It wasn't overly, you know, it wasn't chewy or anything, but it wasn't watery like you sometimes get with a Pilsner. The, the, it was a substantial beer. Nice. Yeah. Worth having more? I think so, yes. Yeah, especially if you're experimenting with or really like the Pilsner genre. Okay. All right, we're getting more comfortable with that as uh, as we've brewed two of those in the last just couple of months. Yeah. So, uh, my first beer is a uh, beer that uh, that uh, George and I had uh, sat down and had uh, on a Sunday just within the last couple of weeks at a um, at a um, beer room uh, nearby here the here in the studios. Um, brew is called Sawtooth Ale, made by Left Hand Brewing. We had this at a place called uh, uh, Beer market or is it beer world beer market beer market yes yes which features about 200 different beers on tap it's a great place to go it's a, it's a chain there's several uh several locations around the country it's well worth going it's good um sawtooth ale uh i was fortunate enough to uh to find it in a place that had it on a nitro tap it was a very smooth uh, it was a very smooth brew uh it's listed as a strong bitter I would almost call this more of a brown ale, though. It was it was dark in color, 
Um, it was very malty and only slightly on the bitterness. Overall, it was pretty good. Um, not real heavy, not real light. Um, it was a good balanced, uh, good balanced beer, and I think the nitro helped out with that. And uh, yeah, worth worth having a couple of them. I think. Good, good. Um, I guess for my next one, there's a little bit of a story attached to it. Oh. So recently, I was invited to a wedding in Indiana, and I don't get out to Indiana all that often. However. We went to the wedding. That, that happened. It took, you know, about 20 minutes, as you know, modern weddings do. And then afterwards, it was about two, two and a half hours between the wedding and the reception. So as you do, we went miniature golfing. Nice. And then after we were done with that, we went off and we found a local brewery called Figure 8. Figure 8. Figure 8. It's a small brew pub in the, uh, the middle of Valparaiso, Indiana. And they have one on tap called Raven Tor. It is a oatmeal stout, and it was on nitro. Um, but the mix of nitro to CO2 was really good, so the bubbles were smooth, but it wasn't completely, you know, smoothed into oblivion. Okay. So uh, it's a mix of English grains, a hint of chocolate malt, and flaked oatmeal. And it was very creamy, had a very full body. It's about 5.5%. Okay. So I don't know if if they're into any distribution or if they're just doing the brew pub at this point. I haven't really seen it anywhere. Um, but if you're in the Valparaiso area, it's definitely worth uh, checking out. So, nice. Yeah. Nice. I'd like to know more about the combination of nitro and CO2 that makes up those nitro taps. Because that's still a bit of a mystery to me. A little bit, Yeah. I mean, I know that there's a there's a mixture because if it was just 100% nitro, one it would be prohibitively expensive, and two it would just you know dissolve the beer into nothing. But um, but point. I don't know what different percentages or how you get that get that or anything like that. Yeah. So I, I still stand by my opinion that I think the nitro taps are much more. Uh, it, it's much more of a positive attribute of. Uh, non-stout beers. I think um, I think lighter lighter beers such as uh, brown ales or IPAs. There's a smoothness smoothness that comes with the nitro tap that I think really adds a lot to the beer. The stouts. If you're taking away that uh, that top carbonation, I just I think there's too much loss there. Well, to be perfectly honest, I didn't realize that it was on nitro when I ordered it. Oh, okay. Um, and then I got it and took one look at it and then looked at the menu again and said, yes, okay, this is nitro. Um, but they did a pretty good job. They they hid a good balance, and so it wasn't uh, overwhelmingly smooth. Okay. Yeah. Good deal. Yeah. Good deal. My second beer is a, brew, is a beer that was uh, made here in the Chicagoland area. Uh, there's a bit of a story with this one as well. This beer was gifted to me at an association event that I had hosted um, in the month of July. Um, the president of the association was uh, was nice enough to uh, to hand off a uh, a beer to me as they're not uh, not of the beer drinking type. So they uh, they uh, came across a Chicago beer that they weren't interested in having, and certainly I'll certainly drink it if they won't. So yeah, and, and fortunately it was a good one. So I so I give give a big uh, big thank you to them for that. Uh, the brewery is called Metropolitan Brewing. Uh, they're located in Chicago um, on the north side, I believe just a little bit north of Wrigleyville. The brew is called Dynamo Copper Lager. 
It, the style is listed as a Vienna lager with IBUs of 29. It's a 5.8% alcohol by volume. Uh, hints of caramel and toffee in the flavor without being overwhelming. Hmm. Uh, the hops on this were very mild, almost surprisingly mild. Um, it left it with a very malty kind of sweet, um, sweet flavor to it. I enjoyed it. I was not familiar with Metropolitan Brewing prior to having this beer, and I'm not sure what kind of reach they have at this point, but uh, I think they did pretty good with this one. Yeah? So, oh, good. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep my eye open for uh, for what else they have out there and see uh, see what else they got. Again, Dynamo Copper Lager. Copper Lager. So what kind of a lager did it come out as? Like a, like a Pilsner or a Hellas? Or do you, do you know, is it like super light? No, it had some color to it. Had a little bit of color to yeah. it? Okay. Yeah, it was, I mean, almost a brown ale, but not quite. Really? Let me okay. see if I, I may have a picture in my phone that I can I can show you, but it was yeah it was definitely not a not a light beer. Okay. So. Well, good. All right. So, we're going to a beer number three, and I got to admit I'm really excited about this. I'm kind of excited about it too. This is uh, this is going to be a first for a nice place to brew. Um, George and I are are going to team up on this uh, on our last uh, our, our last beer reviewed. Uh, and we are going to do a live tasting and live review with a uh, with a first time. Uh, first time taste of a special edition beer that's made by Salamoth Brewing out of Naperville. Uh, this is a beer called Conquest. And this has immediate intrigue for both me and George on the onset, um, just with the makeup of this, because this is a this is classified as a Belgian triple. And uh, we got we, there's a <laughs> okay. You, you so you guys will probably hear me cursing a little bit just because they decided to dip this thing in wax for some reason and <laughs> it's hard to get off i need to find a description on here real quick and i'm just i'm gonna try to keep uh keep talking in the process i apologize i should be a little bit more prepared than i am this is a special edition um it's uh uh i think they're doing only like one run of this uh they did pre-sales about a month or so ago and they just made it available I think two it was yeah. pre-orders within the last two weeks, and they had uh, they had a little get together at at Salamote to celebrate the release. And uh, I was uh, George and I were not present for that, but we did uh, take part in the pre-sale, and we uh, we do have a couple of bottles to uh, to uh, taste and uh, and see what we think. So far, I'm regretting that decision because we wouldn't have gotten these fancy bottles. Well, what is going on there? <laughs> wow, <laughs> this. You know, okay, so you know that Maker's Mark does the whole wax thing too, right? Right, right. But they use like flexible wax, and it's a very thin layer. These guys, I swear to God, it's like, oh, it's wow, super thick. Look how thick that is! So they weren't kidding when they. I kind of thought this. I, I I debated about opening this before, but I thought this might be entertaining, and I was right. It is okay. Um, <laughs> all right, wax off. I need to find wax the- on. <laughs> okay, here's okay, here's the description of the beer. The beer is called Conquest. This is a Belgian style triple with cocoa nibs, toasted coconut, vanilla, and cinnamon brewed with Patrick Rue of Patrick. the brewery. Oh. B-R-U-E-R-E-R-Y. So it's a so it's a collaboration. Okay. Um, but just the just those those additives in, in combination of Belgian triple with cocoa nibs, toasted coconut, vanilla, and cinnamon. My mouth is just watering just seeing that description. <laughs> all right. It. Well, now that we, uh, I know they fought through all that wax. 
Let's get to the pouring. All right. This is a uh, 22 ounce, so we've got uh, got a decent volume to sample from. Thank you, sir. I guess now is an appropriate time to uh, to say our famous line. It takes a lot of good beer to make great beer. Yes, it so does. So in light with that, cheers. Okay, so the so. very first thing I'm going to say about this is what it's striking me as is it's a, it's it's more clear for a triple than you would usually see, and it's, it's not as carbonated. It's very clear. It's got a little bit of head on it, and just looking at this, you would almost swear it's a Pilsner. You almost would. Yeah. A Pilsner or a Hellas. It's very, very clear and very golden. Right. So, all right. And see the aroma? It smells like a triple. It does. You can definitely smell the different elements that I was talking about. Not, not so much the cocoa nibs, but like the cinnamon and some of those other spices that are in there. I could catch a little bit of it. It's very, yeah. It's very mild. Very mild. Yeah. All right. Well, shall we? Proof is in the tasting. Yes, it is. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. It's a complex flavor. It is. There and is. it catches it right on the back end. It, it does. T- it tastes like just a regular Belgian beer right on the front. It's really on the back where you catch uh, catch those uh, those additives. Yeah. And you have the, like, there's the cinnamon. I can taste the, the little bit of the cocoa just, just to add a little bit of extra flavor to it. Right. But, I mean, they used whatever, uh, did it say what grains they used? Oh, that might take me a second. I'm not okay. sure it does. Doesn't look like it. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, well, that's very many, good. There's many, many good things to say about it. The, 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 I, I think the immediate thing that comes to mind is this is very, very well balanced. Yes, very well balanced. Yeah. Yeah, I think above all else, I think I think that's what I can what I can. That's say. what I'm tasting. Okay, so there's a little bit of vanilla in there too. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. That's what I'm tasting, and it is a nine percent. Okay. Claims to be unfiltered, unpasteurized. Um, that's interesting. I'm really surprised to see that, considering the clarity on the beer. Um, but yeah, I think for. What I think is Solomon's first collaboration beer, uh, it's quite good. Might be. Yeah, I'm. Uh, we'll have to put this uh, p- uh, the picture of this on the website. They uh, they uh, served it uh, to the to the pre-sale orders with this uh, pretty famous canister, which I think is very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Conquest Solemn Oath and the Brewery, right on the top of it. Yeah, it's uh, it's not cheap. <laughs> and it's 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 a it's a limited release, so uh, it's uh, it's not going to be one that's readily available uh, in many areas. But uh, I will say, if uh, if you can get a hold of one of these, I'd say go for it. Yeah, it's right outside of their brewery is right outside of Naperville. Right. Um, so if you find yourself in that area um, off of Ogden Avenue, and uh, stop in and get a. I think I, when I was there, they were selling it at that point in pints because uh, I just picked mine up yesterday. Uh, so really, they're doing pints of that. Yeah, they, they were serving it in the uh, in the in the tap room. Okay, well, yeah. uh, more reason to go out to Naperville to Solomoth and uh, and have a pint. Yeah, yeah. All right, that was uh, that was. Uh, <laughs> that was uh, that. That will conclude our uh, segment number one. We're going to segue into uh, into our uh, into our second segment, which will be uh, we'll talk about the activities that we've done over the last month. Um, the brew that we're going to talk about is a pumpkin pie stout, and we'll also talk about many of the activities that we've been uh, 
been going through. Numerous and, and exciting. It is, it is. We got a lot to talk about, so uh, stay with us. That is not what I want. <laughs> okay. Welcome back. back to A Nice Place to Brew. I am Jason. This is George. We are going into uh, segment, segment two. We're going to be talking about our activities over the last month, our latest, uh, latest brew, our uh, activities, and uh, many other things that, uh, that we've done. That was a horrible intro. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, was just, I was telling George just between, uh, between segments, this is the last time that we can ever go five-plus weeks between recordings. It is just, just too long. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, it's just so much to talk about. There right is, now. It, it, and, that's, and you guys that's, will understand why he's tripping over because we just there's so like between last time and this time, there's so much that happened. Right, and that's that's the one positive of having this big of a gap between recordings is how much we've done between between then and now, yeah. and it's all been brewing related. It's not been we've not been sidetracked with you know with other uh, work related or or other such related things. We've been busy doing our thing yeah which is making beer and serving beer maybe we should lead with that um picking up from the uh from the last recording we uh the last beer that we talked about brewing was uh was a classic pilsner which we did is a unique style um pilsners are usually done as a lager we did this as an ale and we got some mixed reactions just from that description of that uh after the last show um, since that, um, since the completion of that show, we have completed our fermentation. We have bottled it, and we have um, we have sampled it, and many other people have uh, have sampled it as well. George, your thoughts? That while a pilsner ale is not the usual style, and it's not technically a official beer style, everybody loved it. There was nobody yes. that that tried it that said, "Oh, this is this is horrible. It tastes." like you know nothing or whatnot but no everybody loved it to the point that there's a new beer fest coming up that we're going to be debuting it to the public there to for serving that too so at there while pilsner ale is not a normal style there is a place in this world for those beers yes there is and just to talk about certain attributes of it um the clarity on the beer came out very very good um, the taste was exactly what you'd uh, expect from a pilsner. You know, it had a had good sweetness to it. It was, yeah, it was just all in all a, a good beer. So, um, yeah, it worked. And uh, just to give a description of where this will be, uh, where this will be um, appearing, <laughs> <laughs> um, you can taste this uh, classic pilsner ale at uh, at. Uh, Blue Island Beer Company's first annual Sesh Fest, which will be the second weekend of October. Uh, let me get a date real quick. Okay, that'll be Saturday, October 10th yep. uh, from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, again, that's Sesh Fest at Blue Island Beer Company. Check it out. It's in Blue Island, Illinois. Uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be serving all day, so uh, come come by, uh, say hi, give, a, uh, give our beer a try, and uh, yeah. We're uh, we're looking forward to it. Um, this will not be our first um, uh, first time serving uh, uh, one of our beers. This will be the second. Yes. And that uh, that segues to another thing that we've done uh, over the past month is we have had our first uh, beer fest where we've been uh, been in the place of being a uh, server. 
or vendor or whatever uh, whatever you like to call it. Um, but our uh, homebrew club was part of uh, Midwest Brewers Fest that was held a couple weeks ago in Willow Springs, Illinois. Um, by all accounts, for uh, for both a nice place to brew and for uh, our uh, our brew club, it was a massive massive success. It was uh, it was well attended. Uh, there was a lot of people that uh, spent a significant amount of time during that day just right around our tent and sampling the, I believe it was nine different beers that we had on tap. Nine different beers, one of which was a cider, but the re- yeah, nine different beers. Right, and one of which was our uh, Belgian Triple, which we uh, see as our flagship. And the Belgian Triple went over extremely well, as we as we had hoped it would. And uh, and many people just uh, just stuck around, tried everything, you know, uh, talked with us. It was it was just a great day. I mean, the weather weather was perfect. The uh, the people people that uh, that came by were all very cool. We had we met some great people, tried some great beers as well. So it was it was just a great day, and one we look forward to uh, to doing again. And uh, that is just uh, just over 30 days away from when we get to do that again. So again, Blue Island uh, Beer Company's sesh, uh, first annual Sesh Fest uh, on October 10th. Hope to see you all out there. Yeah, if you guys are able to make it, we just brewed up the Pilsner that we're going to bring to there uh, yesterday. We modified the recipe just a little bit, add a little bit of body, a little bit of uh, extra flavor. So our second brewing of it. Our second brewing of it. So we'll be, um, that's in the fermenter right now, doing very well. And we will be uh, putting that over the secondary and into a keg and and bringing it on up to Blue Island. Be ready to go. All right. So this is uh, another part I'm really excited about. Um, we uh, just finished brewing a 10-gallon batch this past Sunday. Uh, this was a recipe that uh, that I had developed over the course of several months and one I'm very excited about. This is a pumpkin pie stout. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited about this one, too. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of pumpkin and holiday beers, but just looking at the recipe, looking at everything that went into it, um, I think this is going to kind of be a knock out of the park. Um, In deference to the fact that uh, Back to the Future 2 is coming true at the end of October. um, Except for the Cubs. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Had Looking to. at their record right now, it's a little debatable, but <laughs> uh, no, com- um, no comment. No comment. Yeah. Um, we called this October 21st, 2015. Yes. And I feel like you should uh, rattle off the ingredients if you wish. Once my uh, once my app uh, wakes up. Oh, thank you for that. Okay. Uh, yes. I, I, j- just to uh, add some uh, add some context around this um stout has always been kind of my go-to uh style of beer um i've been a guinness fan for as long as i can remember um i think it's just one of the best beers you can uh, you can find out there and i'm also a huge huge fan of autumn time and fall time and pretty much everything that comes with that so the idea of doing a beer that kind of encapsulated both of those was really really exciting to me so um put the recipe together and so far I mean we're just done with our primary fermentation right now but this has been so exciting to me just 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 getting from the recipe development to where it is right now I've I've just been on cloud nine ever since and I and it's only going to get better because we're going to we're going to taste this beer for the first time probably in the next two to three weeks probably yeah yeah and uh yeah I just can't wait 
So anyway, uh, I will go through the uh, through the ingredients that uh, that made up this recipe, um, and it's a and it's a decent volume of um, of malts. Um, our classic pilsner had well, the first classic pilsner had only just one grain in the recipe. Right. This one that we did this past weekend had three. The uh, the, the last two being very 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 small quantities. This one has six. I'm sorry. No, I no, I I read that wrong. I'm sorry. This has five. This has five uh, different grains that made up the mash. Our base malt. Oh, th- th- this is for the boiler. Oh, that's for the boiler. Yeah. Okay. Our base malt was a uh, Maris Otter, uh, and with that was a uh, was a combination of uh, caramel uh, crystal malt, uh, oats, uh, black malt, uh, black malt, and black barley. Um, the uh, we had a we had a late uh, last minute addition of the uh, black malt to uh, take the place of some of the black barley, which and really just kind of the utility of that was to create the dark um, the dark color that makes up the stout, and just seeing just the ratios of how everything shakes out on this list, it's really amazing just how little of those dark grains it takes to create a really dense dark liquid for brewing absolutely very rich very dark um brew so and then we have uh, a few hops that we, uh, well we threw this we also threw some uh, uh milk sugar or lactose into the boil as well as an addition because this is actually a oatmeal milk stout it is yes um and then which uh which hops did we use we have um, in the boil edition. Um, we had two hops for a ten-gallon recipe. We had a, uh, a German Magnum, and we had a uh, East Kent Goldings, and with that was a uh, was was also an, ad- an addition of uh, milk sugar, uh, making that uh, making that more of a, of the milk stout, um, and in combination with the grains, still can uh, still keeps the characteristics of a sweet stout, and so um, oh yeah. <laughs> Who could forget? Yes. Okay, I'm not done with the boil yet. I'm <laughs> getting ahead of myself. Okay, so for the boil, again, we had the milk sugar, we had the two hops, and uh, 15 minutes uh, to the end of the boil, we had uh, three different spices to add to it, which which really kind of make up the uh, the autumn context of this beer. We had additions of allspice, nutmeg, and cinnamon, all all added at the 15-minute uh, mark um, with the uh, of the remaining boil. The uh, timing was perfect. I think the combination was perfect. Um, the uh, there was a very strong definitely aroma. When definitely we did made, that addition made my house smell like a pumpkin pie for a while. Oh really? Oh yeah. And when <laughs> uh, you know, even now when we're taking samples of the um of the of the work to see where we are with the gravity, right? It still smells very much of those spices. Uh, I think those spices you know dissolved into that liquid really well. If it tastes half as good as it smells i think we're going to be uh doing pretty good and so far all of the um this was a brew day where pretty much everything went right yeah which is uh which we're very happy about after after a few earlier on this year that had some rough points to it we've really turned a corner and paid more attention to small details and uh so far the results of this are are showing to be very positive there was a target original gravity of, I believe, 1063 or 1064. 1067. It was 1067. Yeah. We finished just above uh, 1060. Ten, about 1062, yeah. 1062, yeah. So, and and that's a that's a satisfying number. Yeah. So we so we had a we had the right amount of sugars within the wort uh, to begin fermentation. Um, 
1062 we're calling a success yeah um and we took a gravity reading yesterday so that's six days after uh after the start of fermentation and we were down to 1025 it was about 1025 yeah about 1025 which the expected final gravity was 1026 so we're already below um, the the uh, forecasted final gravity. Yeah. So while our original gravity was a little bit lower than uh, than what the our uh, software had given us, uh, our final gravity we're we're making up for it being uh, being a little bit lower than the final gravity, which is which is a good sign for us. So what some people may notice is that our final gravity of ten twenty six is a lot higher than our yes. our other beers. I'm glad you brought that up. And and the um, the explanation for that is this is a sweet stout. And the sweetness that you're that you're gonna uh, formulate in that beer is gonna come from having more reserved sugars left in the beer that's not uh, that's not eaten up by the fermentation. Unfermentable sugars. The the lactose that we threw in is largely unfermentable. True. So that's where a lot of the sweetness is gonna come from. So I think that you know the spices along with the sweetness of the beer. I think this could be very good. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it was perfect timing when we did this. Um, it was the last weekend in August. Um, it'll be done just in time for uh, for October. Yep. Yeah. So all the great things that uh, that October brings: um, Halloween, uh, leaves changing, football, World Series baseball, which will not include the Cubs. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we will have a, a pumpkin pie stout in uh, 10 gallons worth, and I, I couldn't be more excited about it. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and and not to mention, you know, hockey in there as well. It's towards gonna, the end of the month, towards yes. Towards the end of the month. Yeah. yeah. But I feel Good like it's got to be thrown in there. Oh, no. Total, totally appropriate. <laughs> no, we, we love hockey. Yes. And we love our Blackhawks. So, go Hawks. I don't think that's come up on a show yet. It might have, but it, we started it probably very briefly. Very briefly, yeah. yeah. But you guys will find as we get into the season a little bit that we may mention it here and there. Most likely, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, a uh, couple other things to talk about. Um, one, a uh, couple other things that we've done. Um, one, one thing for the first time that we've done since the last show. Uh, and this is going to segue a little bit. I, I'll, I'll just tease this because this is going to be the subject of our third segment. But um, we have done our first kegging. Yes. And, a couple uh, times. Yes, a couple times <laughs> in a very short period of time. So within, a, within really just the past five or six weeks, we have gotten a um, one keg system. And that one keg system has multiplied already into an inventory of four different kegs. Uh, of which are quickly uh, filling up in volume. <laughs> yeah, we have, what, three of the four filled right now? I think so, yeah. And th- yeah. that last one's going to be used very quickly. I mean, we've got uh, two beers in fermentation right now. We have 15 gallons in fermentation right, right. now. Right, okay, so we between have three the stout keg- and the pilsner, yeah. So we have three kegs worth in fermentation right now. So we need to drink some more beer. We do, yeah. But and and with that, we've learned an entire new process. Uh, I mean, kegging is the uh, is the method um, by far most common for uh, brewers that are re- slowly reaching or in the in the midst of a of a commercial level. Um, if you're going to a um, uh, beer fest or if you're uh, delivering beer to bars or restaurants or things like that, that's how. That's how it's moved. Yeah. Um, uh, to be canning or putting in glass uh, at a retail level is not where the highest quantities are 
are consumed. Yeah, I mean, it, if you're going out to a tap room or if you're going out to a bar, yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, I mean, there's still a lot of bottling and canning for retail sales sure. that happens at that level. But, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of kegging that happens uh, once you hit pretty much where we are and up. So, you know, right. We'll leave it at that. We'll talk about the more details uh, in the uh, in the third segment. Uh, and the last thing I think I've got is uh, we made another mead. We did. Uh, hun- uh, mead being honey wine. We uh, did our first mead, uh, I believe it was uh, June. late June. Yeah. Yeah, it was June. Yeah, yes. around June. Uh, that one is close to ready to go right now, so we decided to do a second one. I have a decent quantity of honey on hand. <laughs> so we uh, finally said, let's uh, let's put this to use. So we made a one-gallon recipe of strawberry mead. We blended up a bunch of strawberries, um, put it all together, and uh, put the airlocks on it and started fermentation and uh, thought we were good. <laughs> the day turned into quite an adventure. Uh, all the ingredients and everything put in together went just as planned it was it was a good day every you know it was, everything was about as expected we did we did some things different with this well and getting i will admit that getting blended strawberries through a funnel with a screen in it is not the easiest thing no in the world. and that took a lot of time that took some effort yeah, yeah. it did i mean it, it, in the end it worked but yeah you know, <laughs> yeah it took some time and took some i guess some muscle with it too um let's see what else uh what else with it um the yeast pitch was different also. Um, we did a, a dry yeast pitch uh, and put an airlock on it. Um, well, right we rehydrated away. it this time because like, the last we, time I did a true dry yeast pitch and it didn't ferment it down the whole way, then um, I had to repitch with some wet yeast to finish off the original one that we did. So that's two things we did differently. One, yeah. w- one we did the, uh, we did the uh, yeast starter with, uh, with this one where we added liquid to it and just kind of got it active before we uh, did the addition. Mm-hmm. And also uh, we, did a, uh, we did a large uh, shake of the two growlers uh, once, yeah. we, once we did the pitch. And as we've talked about on uh, previous episodes, uh, we also did an olive oil addition, which uh, with the which contains the fatty acids that kind of accelerate uh, the start of a fermentation. We did that, and and also in this one um, that we didn't do in the first one because the first one, to be honest, we were just kind of throwing stuff together and seeing what stuck against the wall. A little bit, um, but this time we were a little bit more scientific with it, and we put in uh, substances called peptic enzymes and yeast nutrients. Yes. Peptic enzymes designed because, you know, a mead or especially a, a melomel, which is a fruit mead, it has a lot of those things that can make it very cloudy. So the original one that we made is very good, but very cloudy. So the peptic enzymes are designed to break up that and make the final product more clear. Good deal. And, and then uh, the yeast nutrient is really just to kind of kickstart the nutrient and give them some extra, you know, vitamins and minerals to uh, to be able to chew up the sugars. And this one was nothing complex. We no. heated up some water to, what was the temperature? 140, 150 degrees? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and just added the dry yeast to it, let it mix just for a couple of minutes, and it was ready to go. Yep. That's all, yeah. about all it was. Um. Got to add this uh, fun detail. Uh, we went from uh, finishing off the uh, yeast pitch 
and putting the airlocks on to uh, moving from my house to George's house where we had some bottling to do. Ate some food, came back maybe two and a half, three hours later, something like that. Something like that. To quite a mess in my house. Uh, there were two growlers that made up um, what we had what we had done earlier that day. Uh, one of those growlers had blown off already, and the uh, second growler had a rising uh, bubble level that was going all the way to the top of the uh, airlock, and was probably within about thirty minutes of uh, of blowing off, <laughs> as well. So. We write this up as what we call a brewing emergency. <laughs> so I uh, called George frantically and uh, said, George, what what I do about this? And he said, do you have any three-eighths tubing? I said, no, I don't. He said, I'll, <laughs> I'll, be, over, I'll be over in a minute. And George, to his credit, jumped right in his car with a, with a, uh, with a uh, handful of uh, three-eighths tubing. We, uh, we, we uh, un, uh, took off the tops of the airlocks, attached the tubing onto it, and made a little makeshift uh, blow-off to uh to cover the rest of the fermentation and uh it saved the day i still had a little bit of a mess in my kitchen from what had happened earlier but um that really did save the recipe was that uh was that trip with the uh with the tubing and with uh with that modified uh blow off that we had made yeah because i tell you um i have not seen the early days of a fermentation long term like i did uh in this one just just because it's not here in my house but the aggressiveness of that fermentation was was really really something to behold. It's violent, and the uh, I, I had that happen once to me with uh, one of our triples, where it filled up the air the headspace in a in a five gallon carboy or six gallon carboy, and blew it off, and that was within a day or so. Within yeah, within a day or so. Yeah. Um, this happened so much faster. Like the the even the. Um, gravity level on that triple i think was 1080 yeah the gravity level on your mead i don't think were we able to take we weren't able to take a gravity reading it but was it it's got to be well over 11 oh, something so for sure for sure the gravity level there's so much more sugars in there for right. the yeast natural to eat. fruit yeah they just create all kinds of co2 and all kinds of foam and things happen very quickly yeah yeah. So case case in point, uh, be be uh, ready to make a little uh, modified blow off if you're uh, if you're doing a mead and if you're doing an aggressive yeast pitch, which uh, which we did. That's why for our next batch, I brought over <laughs> our three yes. gallon carboy, and so we're gonna make a two gallon batch, put it in a three gallon carboy, and hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> which will probably happen sooner than later. There's plenty of honey here, and uh, I tell you, I'm excited about it. I think the idea of doing uh, doing meat is very cool. I like fruit. I like uh, strawberries, blueberries, you know, raspberries, as we had done before, and it's and it's simple to do. I mean, if you look at uh, if you look at a website and look for a recipe on mead or even a walkthrough um, of how to put it all together, it's only a handful of steps. It really is. It takes probably about two hours. Yeah, and then and then it's a lot of waiting, right? Um, but that's it's... the catch about it is the only the only thing that's um, that's uh, that's different about it, and and dare I, I mean, for lack of a better term, difficult is just the patience of waiting for it because you can uh, put it all together and brew it within about two hours. And but your recommendation after that point is after it's done fermenting, pretty much just throw it in a closet and forget about it. Right. Yeah. About a couple months or a year later, yeah. you know, you'll have because I mean. What I have right now, which I've cold crashed and and have pretty much to a drinkable state right now, is good. 
it's been in there since June doing okay. doing random things fermenting or secondary or anything like that um but it's still very potent on the alcohol side oh sure and that's gonna mellow out as as it ages right so, right yeah definitely letting it rest and letting it uh settle out and, and age yeah. is uh is gonna be good for it so maybe right around uh, Christmas time, we'll uh, we'll have a special uh, special holiday show where we'll uh, bre- break open the strawberry mead and we'll see uh, <laughs> see what uh, see what that aging process has done at that point. Absolutely, remember that when you are doing mead, though, you're going to end up with a liquid that is probably somewhere between twelve and twenty percent alcohol. Yep. So. It'll knock you on your ass if you're not careful. <laughs> you can quote George on that, too. Be careful with the meat. It'll knock you on your ass. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm perfectly <laughs> fine with being quoted saying that. <laughs> All right. We're going to uh, move into uh, segment uh, three here in a minute. Uh, we're going to talk about our, uh, our lesson for the month. We are going to talk in detail about kegging. So stay with us. All right. Welcome back to A Nice Place to Brew. I'm Jason. I'm George. And we are going into our third segment. We're going to talk about a uh, little, uh, we're going to talk about a few hints that you can use throughout your uh, brewing process that can uh, that can help out. Uh, this is our lesson for the month. Uh, this is our segment number three. This month, we are going to talk about, well, I shouldn't say this month, we'll talk about uh, <laughs> this this show, we're going to talk about kegging. Yes. Something that we uh, <clears throat> we knew little to nothing about as of the last recording. Everything that we have to talk about for this segment is really going to be learned within the past five or six weeks. And in that time, we have attended a class where we've uh, gotten the basics of a keg and its mechanics and how to use it properly and uh, and do all that. And uh, we've also gone from having one keg to having four kegs, of which uh, three are full now. And uh, so far, uh, so far, everything's good. So we're going to we're going to go through the uh, details kind of start to finish what we learned. Yeah, so we attended the class um, trying to figure out how this kegging stuff works because we want and we knew we wanted to start doing that. We wanted to start force carbonating and not doing bottle conditioning. And we knew we wanted to um, be able to be able to serve the beer without having to worry about bottles. And so we went to the class and we learned about the the kegs. And what is used typically for home brewers is something called a Cornelius keg, or a corny keg, as mm-hmm. it's sometimes called. It's a uh, usually a five gallon keg with two posts on the top and a door or a uh, lit, lid latch on the top as well. So what um, what happens with that is you you depressurize. You always want to make sure that let me let me start over a bit here. So a keg is a metal cylinder that you fill with liquid and then you pressurize with right. CO2. So you force pressure into it. It gets absorbed by the liquid and that's how things get carbonated. So, and of course you pour from there. And of course well. you pour from there. You you connect the the gas line and the beer line, and all of a sudden beer comes out and it goes into your glass. Let me add one other small detail before we go forward. Another another thing that this eliminates, in in, in addition to eliminate eliminating glass 
from uh, from being part of uh, the you know the final production of, of a beer um, is is the pressure itself um, outside of using a keg what you're doing is you're using priming sugar to create the carbonation within a beer uh, which uh, we've known from the last year of using is um, difficult and unpredictable yeah. and this was something we were very very uh, eager to get away from yeah if you if you prime or pressurize using sugar in a 12 ounce bottle versus a 24 ounce bottle versus a growler you're going to get different levels of carbonation in the same batch we've gotten ones where we've opened it and it's had almost no carbonation and then we've gotten ones where we've opened it and it's been a geyser and so what forced carbonation or using a keg is going to allow us to do is kind of even that out and no matter what we're working from we're going to have theoretically the same level of carbonation across the board right Right. So in order to do kegging, you need a couple things. You need kegs. You need a keg yes, you do. to be able to put your beer in. Um, you need a CO2 bottle, and you need something called a regulator. Right. So a CO2 bottle, a filled CO2 bottle, has about a pressure of about, if I remember correctly, about 60 PSI, which is way too high right. to be pressurizing a beer. So what you do is you use a regulator to be able to reduce that. So the pressure hits the regulator, and then you turn the, the dial on the regulator down to whatever pressure you need it. Right. And there's two different important categories of that. The, the first rating is what you need to actually pressurize the beer. Uh, I, I should say three categories. One is what to pressurize the beer at. One, what a healthy resting temperature is, just if the beer is done carbonating and you just need it need it to rest and then the third being just how much pressure you need just to have enough pressure for the beer to flow through tubes into a glass right right so there's a chart and it's so different styles of beer need different style uh, different amounts of carbonation if you recall during the second segment we were surprised at the level of carbonation in the conquest bottles right because we thought it was a little less than standard for a belgian triple so a Belgian triple is going to be on the higher end of carbonation, and a, say a stout is going to be on the lower end of carbonation, um, just in general. Sure. So uh, you there, there's a figure which you're going to be using in priming sugar as well called vols or volumes of CO2 um, per gallon of liquid. And where would one find find a rating such as that? One would find that if you're using a beersmith application or if you're using a chart uh, for different styles, you'll be able to find that. So uh, it, a lot of times it's between two and three. Okay. The numbers are between two and three. Um, so, for example, a triple is about 2.5. Our Pilsner was about 2.3. And I think a sweet stout should be about 2.2. Uh, you won't find it in there. Um, so it 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 will be it will show the different levels of carbonation based on style. Okay. Um, and so what you need to do with kegging is you need to do a little bit of a calculation and take a look at a table. So you're going to take a look at the vols of CO2 that you need versus the temperature. Lower temperature beers. Temperature. Just put a context around this. Is the is the temperature of the beer itself or the temperature on the outside area outside the keg? 
temperature of the beer itself. Okay. okay. Um, a lot of times that's affected by putting it inside of a chest freezer or a refrigerator right. to, to it, chill the beer. Being if it was a lager or an ale. Right. Yeah. Well, even afterwards, you can even take an ale, chill it down to about 30 degrees, and then it's easier to pressurize. Hmm. So the lower temperature of the liquid, the easier it is to pressurize. So um, you take the temperature of the liquid by the vols of CO2 that you want, and then that'll tell you what pressure you need the regulator sitting at in order to be able to charge the beer, as we call it. So in order to be able to pressurize the beer. So you hook up your regulator, you dial it into the right pressure, you connect the line from the regulator to the the in or the gas post of your keg and clip it on and you let it sit. Here's one simple detail that we learned from the class and I think is worth mentioning here because because in uh, going from the, uh, the from the post that you mentioned being where the CO2 line is, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's two posts in each of these corny kegs. Uh, one's in for the gas line and one's out. And the colors are pretty much uniform for this. If the color is gray, it's for the gas line. And if it's black, it's the out line. It's the beer. It's the beer line. Right. Yes. So... Um, so yeah, so that's the disconnect. So there's, there's uh, the type that we're using is called a ball lock keg. Right. And that's because when you li- when you look at the disconnect and you lift up the the latch a little bit, you'll see there's ball bearings inside. And so we put that on and push it down, and that latches it to the keg. There's another one called a pin lock that goes on, and it goes in these grooves and then twists and that's how it locks onto the keg and creates a seal. Right. Um, the ball locks tend to be just a hair more expensive, but much more available. Right. So going back to the pressure there for a second. So we wanted a vols of about 2.4 for the beer that we're um, charging right now. So I took the temperature of my basement, which is about 68 degrees and the vols of pressure that we wanted. And that came out to a, um, on the chart, it said I want about 24 pounds of continuous pressure put into the beer. Right. So I set my regulator for 24 pounds, connected it to the in, and let it sit. After about a week, it's pretty much charged. After about two weeks, you're going to have pretty much perfectly charged beer at that point. Okay. There are some ways that you can try to accelerate the process. I've seen some um, recommendations online that you should shake the keg before you charge it. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure what that's supposed to do. So being a home brewer, if they're just walking into this as, as we just did within the past month, if you have you, you buy your first keg, you buy your first regulator, you buy your first CO2 tank, you can expect to fully carbonate a given beer in a five-gallon keg in... About one to two weeks. About one to two weeks. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So comparable to what we would experience with priming sugar in glass. Yes. Very very, uh, comparable, actually. Okay. So, um, but the difference is when you have the priming sugar in the glass, by its nature, you have a little bit of yeast suspended in the the, uh, wort, which is why this works. Right. And you'll be able to, um, you know, add a little bit of sugar to it. It'll eat that sugar and create some CO2 just like it does in the carboy, and it'll 
add carbonation to your beer. Right. The other thing it's going to do, though, is create more yeast. So you'll have sediment at the bottom of your glass. That's a very good point. When you're doing forced carbonation, you're not adding any additional sugars. You're adding CO2. Mm-hmm. And so you're creating a completely anaerobic atmosphere. So extra yeast is not going to populate in there. And you're going to uh, get your carbonation through just direct force injection of the of the CO2. Good deal. So one quick thing to mention about the kegs, too, is... The posts are not just for decoration or anything like that. Now, the inn, which is the gas line, absolutely is the gas line, and the beer line absolutely is the beer line. If you mix them up, your disconnects, what you what you latch on to the to the posts, may get stuck. And there's a couple ways to to notice that. One, there's a different uh, screw head pattern for both sides. Yes. Uh, also. Uh, the colors that I mentioned before, black being for beer, gray for uh, for being gas is, is another one. And another one that's worth mentioning, if you take off the middle uh, the the middle section where you would normally um, where you would normally empty your beer into, if you look down into the keg, it becomes pretty obvious because the area under the black section has a long dip tube that goes down to pretty much the bottom of the keg. The gas line does not have that because that feeds into a whole different section of the keg. Yeah, the gas line has a dip tube that's about three inches long. Right. It's just designed to be just the very top of the keg, force the gas into the top of the keg so it can be absorbed by the liquid. Right. The dip tube goes all the way to the bottom and will commonly bend. Right. Which it has to because, I mean, that dip tube has to access all of your beer within the keg. Otherwise, it's got nothing to grab onto to serve your beer. Right, so it'll bend and it'll go into a divot in the bottom of your keg to make sure that every last ounce of beer um, gets is able to go up into that dip tube to be able to be served. Right. So. Good deal. Well, uh, just to put, uh, put some numbers around uh, what a home brewer can expect from this. You can buy a regular corny keg, depending on where you, what sources you have. Between, I think we've seen prices between fifty and seventy-five dollars. Yes, for a, for a given keg. Um, the uh, you can buy CO two tanks at comparable locations for probably comparable dollar amounts. Um, we bought our uh, CO two tank online, which you can have shipped to you for. Um, much less than you buy in a retail store. Uh, the uh, the catch with that is that tank will build will show up to you uh, empty. Mm-hmm. So you would have to either go to a homebrew supply store or maybe even a fire station to have it filled up. We paid uh, twenty five dollars to have our fill ours filled up. Um, another thing to add, and this is true for CO two tanks and for kegs, is they both go through their own their own incremental certification um, cycle. Which um, I know for kegs is done through uh, through each state's Department of Transportation. I be- I want to say that uh, the CO two tanks go through the same. Um, they do same same department. They do okay. It's about every you. five years, I think, for a keg. Five years for a keg. I don't have it in my notes what it is for a CO two tank. I think it's the same for a CO two actually. Is it yeah. okay? Okay, yeah. and uh, those will be clearly marked on each tank. By, yeah, they'll be by, stamped by law. They have to be. Yeah. So one thing to pay attention for uh, for when you're uh, when you're taking a look for one. To give you an idea, though, our local um, homebrew supply shop, instead of filling it, 
they'll replace it. It's kind of like a propane good exchange. Good point. Good point. Yes. So they try to they try to replace it with one of a comparable quality to what you bring in. Right. And if you bring in one that needs to be recertified, it's an extra forty dollars to have it be recertified. Right. So it's not really a big concern. You know, once every five years, you're going to have forty dollars to to swap out a uh, CO two tank. Right. Um, and a CO two tank. I mean, we've done at this point i think we've charged four five gallon tanks and Something we're still like yeah we're still going pretty strong on the co2 tank that we have so yeah. they last for a good while right it's probably worth mentioning as well is because we have pretty much a single keg regulator uh we've been able to uh to find a y adapter that's uh, that's given us the ability to charge two different kegs mm-hmm from uh, from one uh, CO2 tank. And I believe there's tools out there to charge even more than just two. There's distribution bars that you can get, <coughs> that you can get ones that have one input and four outputs. Okay. Or I've seen, even seen as high as one input and six outputs. From the, the same, so to, to put, it, put that in context, six different kegs connected to one CO2 tank. More importantly, connected to one regulator. Okay. So what that's going to mean is you're only able to have one pressure setting for all six kegs. Okay, yes. So if you're charging the same or similar beers, or you're just wanting to do a serving for six different than uh, at a really low PSI, then that makes sense. But if you need different pressures for different kegs, then you might yeah. need to stack your regulators um, because most regulators you can actually unscrew part of it and put an additional regulator on it and kind of stack your regulator so you can get different pressures that's a good point um so there's a couple different ways to kind of slice that uh it depends on how specific you want to be how picky you are about your carbonation and um you know how you want to get it set up but right now we have two we have one regulator one pressure and we have a y adapter to be able to go to two different kegs right which we just put in uh, put into practice within the last week. Yes, we did. And so far, so good. Yeah. Yeah. Good deal. Good deal. Well, that's our lesson for the month. That is uh, that is all we've learned about kegging over the last, uh, <laughs> last five or six weeks. I'm sure that's clear as mud. I'll try to put some information up on the, um, on the website, <laughs> take some pictures of the different pieces of the kegs, including the poppets and the O-rings and things yes. like that to pay attention to. And so you'll have some more information up there, right? There, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of mechanics that go into those regulators, as we learned from the from the class. And yeah, that'd be yeah. that'd be a good thing to, to add to the website. Well, to uh, to add our uh, social media links as well, check us out on Facebook and uh, and Instagram at a nice place to brew. Check us out on Twitter at nice place to brew. Our next show will be coming much sooner than the five weeks it's been since the last upload. And um, to tease this, this will be done outside of our uh, our studio uh, here in uh, Darien, Illinois, where it's a nice place to live. Uh, we will be uh, doing this. Uh, we'll be doing the show at a uh, at a local brewery, and we hope to uh, have a conversation with a uh, with a brewer who knows a little bit more than we do and can bring us uh, bring some uh, good context to uh, in uh, in conversation with uh, with what a home brewer can uh, can be doing or. Uh, or things that are that are happening uh, that uh, that are worth uh, worth noting for so new and exciting techniques. It is, yeah, and we're we're excited about this. We're excited to be doing uh, shows of more frequency, and we're excited to be brewing at more frequency, which uh, which we are. 
our next brew that we're going to be doing here um, that we'll hopefully be able to talk about with you guys is a smoked porter. Yes. Um, And so hopefully we'll we'll have some good results on that, and we'll be able to tell you about that. Yes. Yes, we will. Um, Again, uh, check us out at uh, at, uh, Session Fest at uh, Blue Island Beer Company. That'll be uh, October uh, 10th of this year from uh, 2 to 6 p.m. And uh, I, I can't leave this off. Uh, we had a noteworthy event uh, over the past uh, past week that is a, that affected our uh, our brew setting, and we wanted to. It was a crappy segue. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so in in the past week, we had a, um, a death in our home brewing family. We had um, one of our constant companions in our brewing has been um, my dog Hilda who has been a, a brew dog for us she's dutifully cleaned up any excess work that we've spilled or yeah, anything like that so yeah, she has um, and and she will be missed uh, she recently lost her fight with cancer and had to cross the bridge and go play in happy fields forever so uh We'll miss her, and we'll uh, continue to do our efforts in in her name. We so. will, we will. Yeah, Hilda, enjoy enjoy the fields forever, for uh, forever remembered as uh, hashtag Brewdog. Uh, take <laughs> take a look at our uh, at our social media pages. We have uh, posted uh, pictures of of Hilda over the past uh, not just week since it happened but uh, several months i mean she's really been a she's featured yeah she is she's been a constant uh, companion and uh, will very much be missed and uh yeah there's plenty uh plenty more uh more brews in the future so uh, the memory lives on so anyways <laughs> uh again the next show will be uh will be uh, outside of the studios here um check us out at uh, at session fest check us out on the social media and uh not to not to forget our website www that not let's try this again www.aniceplacetobrew.com we're going to have uh we're going to have a fair amount of uh, updates within the the next week or so including some uh, things we've talked about on this show uh we look forward to uh hearing from you again and uh to sign off it takes a lot of good beer to make great beer. And with that in mind, cheers. cheers. <laughs>